It's the primary regulator of blood pH. It's through the breath and the kidneys is a secondary regulator. It's not our food. Um, our food can influence blood pH, but the primary regulator of blood pH is our breathing. Welcome to the High Performance Health Podcast with your host, Angela Foster. The show where we talk about everything you need to break through limits and achieve a high performance mind, body and lifestyle. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of High Performance Health. Today, I sit down on a second-time guest on the podcast. It is with Patrick McEwen, who is author of the brand-new book, The Breathing Cure. He also wrote The Oxygen Advantage, another fantastic book. If you haven't listened to our first episode um, on this podcast with Patrick, definitely go and check that out. But in today's episode, we're going to be diving even deeper into breathing, and we look at how how to um, how breathing really can actually control your blood pH, your circulation. If you're somebody who gets cold fingers and toes, you're definitely going to want to listen to this episode. Um, if you're someone who's also looking to enhance your deep sleep, you're going to learn how you can use the breath to actually do that and enhance vagus nerve activity. We also talk about mouth taping, uh, something I know quite a few of my listeners have been experimenting with. And we take a dive into asthma and specifically breathing exercises that can really help to bring asthma under control. As Patrick explains in this episode, you know, there is an occasion sometimes where you or maybe even a child gets caught without an inhaler and they really need to understand how to calm themselves down and how to actually focus on their breathing in that moment. So it's a really powerful episode. Those are just a few kind of tasters of the things that we explore in this episode. His book is brilliant. You can go and get it on Amazon. It's a Bible, really. Um, It contains so much information. It really is the definitive book on breathing. So I highly recommend you go and check that out. But let me now introduce you once again to Patrick. So I'm absolutely thrilled to be joined today again, second time guest on the show by Patrick McEwen, who has recently released an incredible book called The Breathing Cure. It just has so much information in it. I, I've been through it once. I'm going to be going through it quite a few times, I think, in detail. Patrick, a very warm welcome. I'm so happy to have you here today. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks very much, Angela. So lots of things in this book um, to kind of dive into. I think probably the best place to start for people who maybe didn't listen to our previous episode um, or are new to kind of the area of breath work is what is, let's explain what what proper breathing is and what disordered breathing is so that people can actually understand the mechanics of it. Sure. So functional breathing or normal breathing patterns will be in and out through the nose. So that's number one. That's where we start off. And it would be regular. So the person isn't, for example, sighing. They don't have frequent sighing, for example, that they have a regular breathing pattern. The respiratory rate should be normal. It should be about 10 to 14 breaths per minute. And the tidal volume, which is the size of the breath, should be normal as well. So normal breathing is regular. It's effortless. It's in and out through the nose. It's driven by the diaphragm. So it's typically lower down. So about 80% of the movement of breathing should be done by the diaphragm which is the main breathing muscle, which separates the the chest from the abdomen during rest. And conversely, um, effortful breathing would be when people are feeling that they're just not getting enough air or their respiratory rate is that little bit faster or their breathing is upper chest or their breathing is through the mouth or breathing is irregular. 
and it will affect different pockets of people. So, for example, in the normal population, it's ranging between 10 and 20 percent have breathing pattern disorders. So a Cochrane review puts it down at, at about 10 percent. But then we see more recent papers with Kyle Kiesel and um, his conclusions was in around it was only actually he looked at 51 individuals and a high percentage of them, it was certainly 20 percent, had dysfunctional breathing patterns. In the asthma population, the literature shows it's about 30%, but we would say it's much more. Um, and in the anxiety, anxiety population, it's as high as 75%. So breathing pattern disorders don't affect everybody the same, but they do affect different pockets of the people and it, also with females. So you can have a female, so during the monthly cycle, she can have fairly normal breathing at different times of the monthly cycle. And then um, post, post ovulation, Sure, mid-luteal phase that there can be a change in breathing patterns and for example she may be diagnosed or she might meet the diagnostic criteria for fibromyalgia between days 10 and days 22 of the monthly cycle but wouldn't meet the diagnostic criteria outside of that so there's quite a few influences on breathing there's genetics there's hormones lifestyle um you know and i suppose you know in a nutshell those are the three main ones and also if somebody has nasal obstruction They'll typically breathe more through their mouth. Mouth breathing is activating the upper chest. And uh, then if you have a predisposed con condition, especially if you're predisposed to a little bit of anxiety or panic disorder, you're quite prone to dysfunctional breathing patterns. And mold exposure as well presumably plays a part. It was, it's quite interesting because in our last house, we didn't actually really see any kind of mold appear until towards the end. But my middle child had so many problems. He was always blocked in the nose. He had his tonsils removed yeah. at a young age. Then they were looking at his adenoids. And when we moved house, it was extraordinary how within literally three to four weeks, his yes. breathing came back and his growth in the last 12 months has I just, I'm so surprised. Every time I look at him, he's got taller, he's got bigger, he's got stronger. And yet yeah. when he was born, he was always projected to be um, a quite a tall boy, quite a tall man when he grows. And so we were sort of struggling thinking, what's happened here? Because he's eating super well. Why is his growth not continuing on that trajectory? It's now righted itself. And that just, like, just amazing to see. Yeah, that. it would be, unfortunately, it's, it's common with children with sleep disorder breathing. So the breathing difficulties that your child was experiencing was was leading to a reduced growth for that child. And when you addressed it by tonsillectomy and adenoidectomy, and just I'd make a point in that, that the gold standard of treatment for the treatment of sleep disorder breathing in children is tonsillectomy and adenoidectomy. But there's a 65% relapse within three years unless nasal breathing is encouraged and uh, un unless the child switches to nasal breathing. And unfortunately, ear, nose and throat doctors don't typically provide respiratory rehabilitation post-surgery. So it's really, really important that a child or an adult who has been persistently mouth breathing, even when the nasal obstruction is removed, that the mouth breathing pattern is changed as well, that the behavior is changed. Mm. Which is what happened to us because he didn't have the adenoids taken, just the tonsils. The adenoids were small, but it was then years later when we moved, we realized and, and what sure. the effect was, which is incredible because yeah, people probably have hidden, unless you have a building biologist, yes. until it really starts to show, which yeah. it did at the end, you have no idea. And yeah, yeah it's, it's quite scary, isn't it? It is. Um, yeah, definitely. Because so many of us have old buildings. 
Mm. And I know you talk quite a bit in the book about um, the, the children and breathing. For, so for anyone's listening, we did also talk about that on the previous episode, quite a bit about how it affects your alignment and structure. So I wasn't going to go into that today, but you touched on there about women. And this is really interesting because you've got a whole chapter or possibly even two chapters dedicated to women's breathing um, and this perception of pain, which is really interesting because you're talking about how in the luteal phase, women can have mis- more disordered um, breathing patterns. Can you just explain a little bit about that so that people can then dive into it in the book itself? Yeah, the normal carbon dioxide in the blood is 40 millimeters of mercury. And the pressure of carbon dioxide in the blood is determined by the carbon dioxide in the lungs. And it's the pressure of carbon dioxide in the lungs that's determined by how much air you breathe, what is the volume of air you breathe. And if you have an individual who is breathing too much air, they get rid of too much carbon dioxide from the lungs because they're breathing it out. And this in turn then is reducing carbon dioxide in the blood. But carbon dioxide serves a number of very important purposes. It's not just um, a waste gas that people often think it is. For example, it's the primary regulator of blood pH. It's through the breath and the kidneys is a secondary regulator. It's not our food. Um, Our food can influence blood pH, but the primary regulator of blood pH is our breathing. It's also um, a vasodilator. So carbon dioxide helps to open up blood vessels. So it's very common with people with cold hands, for example, um, that they have poor breathing patterns or cold feet because blood vessels are constricting because of the, the lower carbon dioxide and smooth muscle in the blood vessels constrict. So our 70,000 miles of blood vessels are impacted by how hard we breathe. Now for females, Female breathing is different to men, and this has been known since 1905 and during the monthly cycle. Um, so it's post-ovulation and it's mid-luteal phase between the days of 10 and days 22 that there's an increase in the hormone progesterone, which is a respiratory stimulant. There's also an increase in, in estrogen. And when there is an increase in the hormone progesterone, it stimulates breathing that carbon dioxide levels in the blood can drop by up to 25%. And that's, that's a really, really significant drop. So if you think of a lowering of carbon dioxide in the blood, mid-luteal phase, blood vessels are constricting. But not only that, <clears throat> less oxygen is getting delivered throughout the body. Um, there's also an increased sensitivity of air hunger. So the female might feel that she's just not getting enough air. And this, in turn, can contribute to anxiety or panic or the feeling of suffocation. Sleep can be interrupted. And also when breathing is faster and more upper chest, it's also causing arousal of the central nervous system that the brain is going more into a fight or flight response. With that as well, pain thresholds reduce and pain perception is increasing. So the symptoms of PMS can be very much attributed to by changes in breathing patterns as a result of hormonal changes. And it's really important for a female to track her breathing and just to, you know, even to determine if there's a relationship between hormonal changes and the resultant changes to breathing and to improve her breathing patterns. Because if we just react to breathing and just, you know, it's very important that we exert some control over breathing, which we can. And it is the one function that we can exert some control over that we can slow down our breathing, that we can be breathing in and out through the nose because I would think of the normal reaction is if you're feeling that you're not getting enough air, you will typically revert to faster breathing and upper chest breathing and mouth breathing 
And that is going to cause activation of the body's stress response. And that comes then with its own issues as well. And oftentimes there's a vicious circle here that one thing is feeding into the other. For example, poor sleep and anxiety go together. But anxiety is also contribute to poor sleep. And then, for example, if you have poor mood because of poor sleep, and then you've got increased pain on top of that, that's going to feed in itself. And all of these things will influence breathing. So I think the best thing for a female to do is just track her BOLT score. And the BOLT score is a measurement of functional breathing. And in terms of this, this was tested by Kyle Kiesel looking at 51 individuals. And he looked at their breathing from a biochemical point of view, a biomechanical point of view, and also from a psychophys psychophysiological point of view. His conclusion was that if the BOLT score is above 25 seconds, there is an 89% chance that dysfunctional breathing is not present. So to measure your BOLT score, you, you're sitting down and you have normal breathing for about five minutes or so. And just take a normal breath in and out of the nose and pinch your nose. And you time it in seconds how long you hold your breath for until you feel the first definite desire to breathe. And when you feel the first definite desire to breathe, you let go and you breathe through your nose. It's not the length of a maximum breath hold time. It's only the length of time it takes until you feel the first definite desire to breathe. So, for example, if a female has a bolt score of maybe 10 seconds on day seven of the, the, the monthly cycle, if she has a bolt score of 10 seconds, she's already in poor breathing patterns because her bolt score is less than 25. And she may even feel symptoms there, disproportionate breathlessness. She's getting breathless during physical exercise, more anxiety, her sleep can be impacted, etc. And then she goes through the, the mid-luteal phase. And now all of a sudden her bolt score is going to go from 10 seconds to five seconds. So the lower the bolt score, it's, it's almost that females will be teetering on the brink of symptoms. And there are, there are conditions that are much more prevalent amongst females than men. Temporomandibular joint pain, panic disorder, agoraphobia. And cognitive behavioral therapy is often used, for example, for panic disorder. But CBT doesn't change respiratory physiology and nor does mindfulness. You know, we need to be looking at sleep and we need to be looking at functional breathing patterns. And when I'm talking about breathing, Angela, I'm not talking about going down to some studio and the instructor is telling you to take this full big breath in because that can be focusing on the biomechanics of breathing, but sacrificing the biochemistry of breathing. In order to improve the biochemistry of breathing, and I would say if I was to look at three dimensions of breathing, the biochemistry, the biomechanics, or the resonance frequency, I would focus first on the biochemistry. It's really, really important because by changing biochemistry, by focusing on that dimension, you can improve your blood circulation. You can calm the central nervous system. You're also improving carbon dioxide tolerance. Your breathing is becoming slower and it's easier then to bring in biomechanics of breathing. So with breathing, the problem is that it's often taught according to traditions. And say, for example, my background originally is, is not yoga, it's buteco. And I'm taught the buteco method. But the buteco method is focusing on the biochemistry. So that's where my bias is going to be towards. But then I'm not paying much attention to the biomechanics and I'm not paying any attention to resonance frequency breathing. And that's what, with oxygen advantage. Five years ago, I started that and that gave me the freedom to look at breathing from a multitude of different perspectives. But the yoga instructor 
they're taught according to tradition. They can't veer outside of that tradition because at what point does their in training not become the training, if you understand what I mean, mm. and the Pilates, etc. So we're all taught according to traditions. And this is holding breathing back because we're, we're then not exposing ourselves. And sometimes it's natural then to become narrow-minded that my tradition is the best way and this is the way to do it. But we're breathing. Breathing is more complex than just focusing on one dimension. So for a female, I think it's very important for them to observe their breathing. It's very important for them to be breathing through the nose. And even during physical exercise, performance is going to be impacted there. Academic performance is going to be impacted. And you could ask then, like, why is this information not get out there? Most research on breathing has been done by men. And even when breathing was done on females, it didn't take into consideration the monthly cycle. And then the other aspect then is what happens post-menopause. So with post-menopause, then, of course, um, fluctuations in hormones are leveling out. So progesterone and estrogen, they can contribute to improved sleep patterns. So, for example, you, there is a reduced risk of sleep apnea for younger women in comparison to men. But when the woman then is going through maybe the ages of, I think it's the median age is about 51 years of age, um, menopause, that sleep disorder breathing increases by 300%. So there's an increase in the risk of obstructive sleep apnea. And obstructive sleep apnea means that the person is stopping breathing during sleep for periods of more than 10 seconds. That would be an apnea or a hypopnea means that there is a reduction in the flow of their breathing. So their airway their airway is compromised to some point that there's a reduction in the flow of their breathing for up, for up to 10 seconds. And then there's another condition which is called upper airway resistance syndrome. And this also is quite common in females. The problem with these sleep disorders is that they're constantly disrupting sleep patterns and causing sleep fragmentation. And the female then isn't achieving deep sleep because she's being aroused from deep sleep patterns. So this in turn then can activate the body's sympathetic response. And with this then hot sweats and hot flashes can be part of that. So it's very important post-menopause to look specifically at the application of breathing for sleep disorder breathing. I wrote an article on this that was published in the Journal of Clinical Medicine about a month ago. And I wrote it with two, two ear, nose and throat doctors and it's a 10,000 word article and it, it's scientifically based because sleep medicine has failed to look at breathing, unfortunately. And the gold standard of uh, sleep disorder breathing for sleep apnea is typically a CPAP machine. And then the second, the second course of action might be mandibular advancement devices. But it's really important to change and improve our breathing patterns during rest because it's how we breathe during rest, which influences our breathing during sleep. So for females, regardless of age, um, you know, to bear in mind the impact of hormonal changes during the, the earlier years and then during the later years is to bear in mind the, the impact of your breathing on your sleep patterns. And also, for example, those symptoms like, and again, hasn't been studied. It's, mm -hmm. you know, there has been very scant research in it. I'm not aware of any, there are some, some, pointing towards that, yes, sleep apnea will increase the risk of hot flashes. But we've had anecdotal evidence of females sending in reports back to us that when they taped their mouths during sleep and they were breathing through their nose, hot flashes reduced. 
Interesting. So, you know, there is definitely a connection there that needs more investigation. Just want to briefly interrupt today's show to tell you about an awesome magnesium supplement that I take. It has really profound effects on my sleep. I also take it first thing in the morning. I like to take my magnesium morning and evening. It's very alkalizing on the body. It helps to reduce your stress levels and help you to feel relaxed and at peace. It can also help you fall asleep faster and deeper and boost your immune system. It helps you to maintain normal heart rhythm and can lower cortisol levels while also helping you to continue to build strong bones. And that powerful product is Magnesium Breakthrough by Bi Optimizers. This has seven different forms of magnesium in it, which is why it's my first choice as a magnesium supplement. I get great results on it, so do my clients, and I highly recommend you check it out. And you can get a cool 10% off your order by going to bit.ly forward slash buy opt. That's B-I-T dot L-Y forward slash capital B-I capital O-P-T. And if you enter code Angela10 at checkout, you will get 10% off your order. So that's bit.ly forward slash buy opt and go and order some magnesium breakthrough and get 10% off your order, including anything else that you buy on their store. They have a fantastic range of products. Now let's get back to the show with Patrick. And interesting as well, what you were saying um, as well about the kind of um, the biochemistry of it and the way that it affects the acid alkaline balance, because if Mm. your blood's pH is more acidic, you're going to draw minerals from your bones. And we know that postmenopausal women are at greater risk of things like osteoporosis. Um, So, yeah, it's really interesting because people often think, well, I need to eat, you know, I need to drink a greens powder drink or something like that to reduce it. But actually they're overlooking the breath. Do you know what really surprises me as well is my own experience recently um, is that I had, I'd been out running, I think it was end of Jan, beginning of February. And it was very, very cold at that time here in the UK, there was snow. And, um, I came back and when I'm running faster, I find it almost impossible to just breathe in and out through Mm -hmm. the nose, but I had no symptoms when I came back, no asthma at all. And then that evening I suddenly found myself extremely breathless and I put my daughter to bed really, really breathless, came downstairs and my husband was like, you can't breathe. What's, what's going on? And I took my Ventolin, like literally nothing, four or five puffs. Then I started doing some breathing techniques, um, which I've learned from you. And I, as it started to come back. And then an hour later, I had it again and it was really mm-hmm. tight breathing. And we'd all had a cold. I don't know if it ended up being COVID. That night I woke up and it was terrifying in the middle of the night, two o'clock in the morning. It's like someone sitting on my chest and I was unable to breathe at all. And it was really panicking me. So I took, like my husband took my blood oxygen saturation, which actually was quite, it was about 92 at first. And then it started to come back. And I phoned the GP the next day because I thought, do I need a COVID test? Like, you know, we'd had a cold, but they, they said to me, this is asthma. Um, they took, checked me over and immediately the prescription was, um, you need to take steroids. You need to go back on steroids, which I haven't done. And I've mm. rectified it. But it amazes me, as you say, that there is no training on breathing. It's just like, that's asthma. You need to go straight back on steroids, um, you know, which I hadn't had since the pneumonia treatment. And I think it's a shame, isn't it? Because we're overlooking, as you say, so much that's going on for people. And their health is so linked to this. Well, with asthma was really where I got into this 20 years ago. And I remember seeing the results with, with asthma I've seen tremendous results with myself and also working with hundreds of people with asthma. And we were seeing results all of the time. 
and I approached the organization who looks after asthma and they have a large number of members. And I was saying, would you, would you investigate this? There's definitely something in this. Can you investigate it? And it was met with total resistance. And there are 20, 25 clinical trials investigating the buteco method for asthma. It's, it's a non-invasive approach. There's no side effects. Logically, it makes sense because people with asthma don't just have asthma. They also have a stuffy nose, more likely. Mm. And if you have a stuffy nose, you're tw- two to three times more likely to have a sleep problem. So they're more tired. And because of the dysfunctional breathing pattern and the faster breathing, their sleep is disrupted, but also they, they have a greater tendency towards anxiety. And people, you know, we, we don't really realize that, you know, and I don't want to say anything negative here, but I decided on that. And based on the resistance that I was getting, that I wanted to get the word out there for people with asthma. That's why I started writing books. And I wrote a book called Asthma Free Naturally back in 2003 and Close Your Mouth in 2004 and other books. And my whole purpose was that if people were to buy a book for 10 pounds, and if they were to read this book, this will contain all of the exercises and to give people then the choice. And of course, now we can do it with YouTube, but we couldn't do it back then with YouTube. Um, it's just amazing that people with asthma are not encouraged to breathe through their nose. Because mm. when we look at the human airway, the upper airway, what does the mouth do in terms of breathing? It does nothing. There is absolutely no purpose, no function um, devoted by the mouth in terms of breathing. When we breathe through the mouth, all hap- that happens is that the air goes straight down the lungs, down our throat. The mouth is a hole for air to come into the body. All of the work is done by the nose. So the nose is moistening the air and warming the air and regulating volume. Nasal breathing is also connected with the brain. It's also harnessing a gas called nasal nitric oxide, which is a bronchodilator. So it helps to open up the airways and sterilize the lungs. It's also antiviral. So with nasal breathing, our breathing is so much more efficient and economical. We tend to have greater amplitude of the diaphragm. And mouth breathing is fight or flight. And if you were to ask the number of people with breathing problems, including asthma, how often do you have your mouth open during sleep? Are you waking up with a dry mouth? Do you do your physical exercise with the mouth open? You will find that it's relatively common. And yeah, there, it's not just that people are not interested in it from the healthcare professionals. They're actually actively resisting it. And that, that is strange. And now it's starting to change. But again, it's happening with some doctors and some, some dentists and even neurologists because with doing breathing exercises, we can help to improve blood flow to the brain. So, for example, people with epilepsy. And, you know, I didn't, the only reason that I didn't want to go down the whole breathing route and say that breathing is the cure-all because it's not. But the one thing about changing our breathing patterns is that it can influence different functions throughout the human body, including sleep, including anxiety and mental health. You know, it can also influence epilepsy and functional movement and dentistry and orthodontistry. And it's very important that it it, it gets out there. But I was having a panel discussion with a number of different people. Um, Dr. William Hang was on it. Professor John Mew from Purley in the UK. Um, John Mew, sorry, Mike Mew. Um, Kevin Boyd was on it. James Nestor was on it. And this came up in conversation, why is breathing being overlooked? And I made the point that if breathing, if teaching breathing promised big profits, 
mm. it would be utilized and it doesn't. And it's only going to be until that day that, you know, because that's ultimately what it's about, that money is a major driver in healthcare. We have to be realistic here. But in saying that, there is a change happening and there's a major change happening, you know. So I think it's tremendous, really, really, since 2020. 2020 has been the year of the Brett. Mm. Yeah, it has. And I think the work that you and, and James Nestor are doing just to spread that word is absolutely phenomenal. Because I know from my own experience, when that, when that happened that night, the panic that ensues yeah. and you have that incredible air hunger and you're trying to get a breath and you're naturally going to go more for the mouth. And I had to remind myself because... I need to breathe through my nose and just kind of calm down. But why aren't we given these techniques? Why aren't more people given them rather than you've almost given away your power, haven't you? When there's an inhaler, that it's, that's the solution is, and I'm not yeah, saying we don't need yeah. it, but breathwork yeah. training would be helpful. Well, it should be something that's done alongside the medication. So mm. for example, if somebody, <clears throat> the number one point there would be if somebody is having asthma attack, if their ventilator is, isn't working, they need to call their doctor straight away. It's not a great sign. Um, and if they are in the throes of bad symptoms of asthma, taking an oral steroid can be, you know, it can be beneficial in getting breathing under control. But say, for instance, if somebody is during the early initial stages of asthma symptoms, they're wheezing and coughing, they can do breath hold exercises. And we also use these for people with panic disorder and also people with long COVID. There was an interesting um, <clears throat> research looking at Mount Sinai Hospital, patients with long COVID in Mount Sinai Hospital in New York, and um, all of them had low carbon dioxide. And it's not that carbon dioxide is the only answer, but if that's the case, then we need to be normalizing carbon dioxide. So for a person who's having asthma symptoms, on the first signs of symptoms, what you could be doing is taking a normal breath in and out through the nose and pinching the nose, and holding the breath for five, four, three, two, one, let go and breathe through the nose, breathe normally. And then again, take a normal breath in and out and hold five, four, three, two, one, and let go, breathe normally. Because the one thing about asthma is that when the airways are narrowing, it's normal that we feel that we're not getting an affair. And as a result, then we typically breathe faster and harder and often through the mouth. But that's going to feed back into cooling and drying out of the airways which in turn then is going to feed into airway narrowing. So it's a vicious circle. So I can only think of a youngster who may go to school someday and that child has forgot their ventilant and then they start having symptoms. And of course, panic and anxiety is going to kick in, whether it's for a child or an adult. You know, what's going to happen there? Because if the kid doesn't have medication, that's when we need to have breathing exercises to help get our breathing under control. And let's look at the research on this. The first clinical trial on Buteco with asthma in 1994 at the Matter Hospital in Brisbane compared, there were two groups. It, initially, there was about 170 people. <clears throat> By the time they met the selective criteria and they were matched, it was down to 40 people. You divide them into two groups. 19 or 20 did Buteco. 19 or 20 did um, the in-house hospital program in the Matter Hospital was the control group. After three months, the Buteco group had 70% less symptoms, 90% less need for rescue medication, and 49% less need for inhaled corticosteroid. Uh -huh. Now, the control group had 0% change, nothing. Zero. Zero. Zero percent change. You will see this. If you go to the Australian Medical Journal, and if you look at, if you look at Buteco, Matter Hospital trial, 
um, published in the Australian Medical Journal in 1998. Now, the doctor in charge of that trial was Professor Charles Mitchell. And he said that asthmatics, he, see, he said they feel much better. But he said because the buteco group, they weren't blowing any higher in terms of their lung function, their forced expiratory volume. So he's, he then interpreted this, that they were no better. But we have to look at it this way. Here we have a group of 20 people with asthma. They had a long history of asthma, 21 years on average. These people had 70% less symptoms. Surely that must be a plus. They had 90% less need for rescue medication. They had 49% less need for inhaled corticosteroid. In other words, they were able to maintain their same lung function at the end of the trial with half the need for medication, steroid medication as before. So it's not about, I wouldn't see it that it was a negative, that lung function didn't change. I would see it as a positive. These people were able to maintain the same lung function, but with half the medication. But that's not how Dr. Charles Mitchell interpreted it. So we have to be always wondering, you know, when a result like this is coming out, what are the biases of the researchers because there can be a bias that comes into the study and we, we have to be looking at that too, you know? Yeah, 100%. And, and it was interesting, the in-house hospital program, 0% change. And if I was to put a guess in it, it's still the same program that's still taught at the Matter Hospital in Brisbane. Zero. Really unbelievable. And also thinking up there, what you're saying as well about people's anxiety, it is frightening when you're yes. having an asthma attack. It's terrifying yes. and that compounds the issue. But as you say, sometimes you just might not be med near medication. Sometimes yeah. your ventilins just run out. Yeah. <laughs> like yes. that, And that's scary. And, and yes. you know, as you say, then you suddenly like everything tenses up. You start, you know, I found myself going like this and you don't know what to do. And then you have to remind yourself, I'm an adult, but as for a child, that is terrifying. And I think as you yeah. say, should yeah. be taught more. Um, well, Angela, these exercises are mainly free. They're all free for kids online because mm -hmm. we put them out there for free. And what I would say to any, per any person with asthma, because in the UK, the asthma rates are pretty high. Like in Ireland, UK, Australia, New Zealand, we are the four countries with the highest incidence of asthma in the world. Yeah. And it's typically 8 to 10% of the population. So you're talking so about... we're higher than the US. <laughs> yes, Yes. Right. Now that's, that's going back not often to in health, is it? That's the USA amazing. is number five, as far as I know. But they're in different sectors of the US population, though asthma rates are higher, African Americans, for example. Um, but the BBC did a tremendous documentary on this back in 1998, and it's called QED. So it was kind of an investigative documentary, half an hour long. And they conducted it in Scotland. And the research, the journalist at the time, she was Sally Magnuson. She, she, they selected three long-term asthmatics and they put them through the Buteco technique. And the objective was to get these people remarkably better in five days. Now, the instructor was a Russian Buteco instructor called Sasha Stalmatsky. He doesn't have a great bedside manner, but look at the results. And for any person with asthma, if you want to learn a little bit about your condition, Go watch that documentary, QED, Buteco. QED. Yeah, and the name the of it notes. is Breathless. Breathless. Um, and it's not just about how do we manage asthma if you're having symptoms, but why should a person with asthma or a child with asthma be going around with their mouth open all the time? Mm. Because all they're doing is feeding their condition. Are they upper chest breathing? You know, do they have, do they feel disproportionately breathless? 
People with asthma don't have good breathing patterns because their asthma is impacting their breathing. Let's start the first place we should be looking at is improve their breathing. And it's not about, you know, blowing into a straw or blowing up balloons. We need to look at the biochemistry here. It's not just about improving respiratory muscle strength. And here's the issue again when it's come to breathing, that people sometimes think that breathing exercises are all the same. They're not. There are so, you know, it's like diet. Not all nutritional plans are the same. There's so much variation and there can be so much contradictory advice. But ultimately, when it comes to breathing, in terms of the dimensions, there's only three of them. And that is the biochemistry, the biomechanics, and psychophysiological from a researcher's point of view, but we look at resonance frequency breathing. Can we talk and about that, what the that. Um, resonance frequency is? So the yes. biomechanics is obviously like the way that we breathe using the diaphragm and yes. expanding in the intercostal muscles and not upper chest. Yes. And then you talked a little bit about the biochemistry and the exchange of carbon dioxide and oxygen. Um, yes. What about the resonance frequency? Can you explain that? Because I know that actually might be a good segue as well into HRV because I know listeners will be yes. interested in that as well. Yes, yes. So in terms of HRV, heart rate variability refers to, it's a, it's a good feedback of how well is the autonomic nervous system working. In other words, the automatic functioning of your body. And therapists of old, when a client would come into them, the therapist would monitor their pulse rate, the speed of their pulse rate. And anybody can do this. If, for example, you were to put your hand on, on your, the carotid artery here and just monitor the speed of your pulse rate, and as you're checking the speed of your pulse rate, also check your breathing. So that as you breathe in, you should notice that your heart rate is getting faster. Mm -hmm. And as you breathe out, you should notice that your heart rate is getting slower. So in terms of the breath in, the inhalation, that's more driven by the sympathetic nervous system or the body's stress response. And during the inhalation, the vagus nerve steps back a little bit. But the exhalation is primarily under the control of the parasympathetic nervous system or the body's rest and digest response. And it's, you know, during the exhalation as well, we can bring, if we want to influence states in the body, it's all about changing the exhalation. So for example, what's popular is the Wim Hof technique and the Wim Hof technique is a stressor. And that's involving big full breath in and a fast breath out and a big breath in and a fast breath out. <clears throat> the fast exhalation is stressing the body. So if you breathe out really fast, it stresses the body. But if you breathe out really slow and prolonged, it relaxes the body. So in terms of stimulating the vagus nerve, there's a number of ways to do it. And the vagus nerve is wandering throughout the human body. And it was discovered back in 1913, or is it 1921, that when researchers isolated the heart of a frog, they could determine that when they stimulated the vagus nerve, it secreted a, a substance, they call it vagus stuff, but it caused the heart to slow down, the heart rate to slow down. So when we bring the body into relaxation, we can bring it into relaxation by having a slow exhalation. And by having a slow and prolonged exhalation, <clears throat> the vagus nerve secretes the neurotransmitter acetylcholine. And this causes a slowing of the heart. And the slowing of the heart is interpreted that the body is in a safe environment. Because whenever throughout evolution, whenever we were confronted by stress, our breathing would get faster and our heart rate would increase. So if we ordinarily have faster 
breathing and a faster heart rate, the body is interpreting this, that the body is, the brain is interpreting it, that the body is not in a safe environment. Mm -hmm. So our physiology can influence very much whether we are in a state of relaxation or not. So the autonomic nervous system, we need to be in a state of balance. It's not that we want to be in total rest and digest, but neither do we, do we want to be switched on all the time. So a balance is resilience, that we have a balance of the parasympathetic response versus the sympathetic response. So we can influence that state. And heart rate variability is a measurement of vagal tone or how well is your vagus nerve working? So the question here is to ask, well, people with, who are either emotionally unwell or physically unwell typically have low heart rate variability. So you could see that heart rate What's variability. Low? When you say low for somebody who's unwell, how low would it be? Because I know there's also differences, aren't there, between there men is. and women. Women um, tend to have lower yes. HRV, I think, than men. Um, do you know, Dan, I don't know, to be honest with you. Um, but I think it's more so, more important is, is optimizing it. So mm -hmm. because we see some people um, that they have high HRV and the whole thing is not necessarily to increase their HRV either, but it's in terms of optimizing it. There's different ways of measuring it. And I'm not sure if all of the devices are accurate. Now, okay. when we spoke with Dr. Jay Wiles, he spoke about whoop bands being accurate. Um, the Elite HRV, um, I can't remember all the different devices, the leaf, leaf devices. He was saying the, the same thing, actually, when I interviewed him. He was saying it's your ability to modulate it yes. rather than the actual to HRV reading. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So as well as how can we increase HRV but nose breathing during sleep? Typically, people who are wearing aura rings will notice that their HRV is better. And probably because the body is going to be more rested with nasal breathing because sleep is deeper versus mouth breathing, there's a greater risk of sleep disorder breathing. And if you're stopping breathing during sleep, you're putting your body into that sympathetic drive, stress response. Mm -hmm. That's going to negatively impact your HRV. Breathing light by breathing less air. So, for example, if you had one hand on chest, one hand on the tummy, and you're slowing down, you're focusing on the airflow coming in and out of your nose, but really slowing down the speed of the air coming into the nose and having a really relaxed and a slow exhalation to the point that you're breathing less air into the body. The fact that you're breathing less air will increase carbon dioxide in the blood. And as carbon dioxide in the blood increases, it will stimulate the vagus nerve. Breathing low with greater amplitude of the diaphragm will also stimulate the vagus nerve because the vagus nerve is... It's wandering throughout the human body and it's innervating all of the major organs, including the diaphragm. And 80 to 90% of the information is fed from the body back to the brain by the vagus nerve. And the brain then is interpreting that information and, and sending information back to the body back in that. Another way then to stimulate the vagus nerve and increase heart rate variability will be slow breathing. And this is where most of the research has been over the years. And this is changing the breathing pattern for different periods of time. Maybe it's for... 10 minutes twice a day or 20 minutes twice daily, that you slow down your breathing to between 4.5 and 6.5 breaths per minute. So a good average would be six breaths per minute. And when and you're doing that, would you do any breath hold? Because I know, like, for example, if you do four, seven, eight breathing, you're yes. actually, that slows it down very nicely, but you yes. are holding it at the top of the inhalation. Whereas I know you yeah. talk about holding at the exhalation to increase CO2 levels, right? Um, yes. Yeah. It's normally we hold, there's different reasons. If you, if you take a breath in for four seconds, 
and then you're holding at the top of the breath. Now, it's probably going to have a similar effect because you're extending the exhalation. So, for example, the breath in is sympathetically driven. And now you're at the top of the breath. And this is when the parasympathetic nervous system is kicking in. So you have a prolonged exhalation. You Sorry, you have a breath hold here at this point. And then you have a slow exhalation. You're still going to stimulate the vagus nerve. Or, for example, when we have people with anxiety, they wouldn't be able to cope with a 4, 7, 8 because mm. their breathing is too fast. So we have them do the same exercise that we would use with an asthma attack. Take a normal breath in and out through the nose, pinch the nose, five, four, three, two, one. Let go, breathe in through your nose, breathe normal for 10 seconds. Or we might have to ask them, take a normal breath in through your nose, out through your nose, pinch your nose, and walk five to 10 paces holding your breath. And that will also stimulate the vagus nerve because instead of having a prolonged exhalation, because these people mightn't be able to do that because their breathing is too fast. Instead, we have them take a normal breath in, a normal breath out, and then we do a breath hold at the end of exhalation. The reason that we have a breath hold at the end of exhalation is because it has a stronger effect. And also during the breath hold and the exhalation, nitric oxide is pooling inside the nasal cavity. So that when you let go of your nose, <clears throat> you breathe in, nitric oxide is coming into your lungs. Nitric oxide helps to redistribute the blood throughout the lungs. Nitric oxide is a bronchodilator. So, you know, in terms of modulating HRV or optimizing HRV, there's a number of different ways to do it. And it's, I suppose it's, it's one of the more objective measurements of the impact of stress on the human body. And there's a few interesting things about this. If a mother is pregnant <clears throat> and she has a lot of anxiety, the anxiety that she's having during her pregnancy will affect the HRV of the baby. So when the baby is born, the baby's HRV is determined by the mother's um, mental state. And that's not to put guilt on anybody, but just to just to bear that in mind. So techniques to and help that then with relaxation. stays with the baby. Does no, it? because it's trainable then. It can trainable. be trainable over time. Okay. So HRV is influenced, you know, it can be influenced by many factors, but no doubt that stress has a big impact. Mm. And, you know, if, if somebody goes to their doctor and they say to their, their doctor, doctor, I feel stressed. The doctor typically is no way of quantifying the impact that this stress has in the person's body. But by measuring heart rate variability, the doctor could, provided that the technology is up to par. And this is a question that I would have um, that the technologies, are they really getting to the point? Are they, are they being accurate? So that's another question for another day. But it's, the technology is providing feedback of your HRV. What's more importantly, how do you increase your HRV? Mm. How do you stimulate the vagus nerve? And <clears throat> even something as gargling, you know, <clears throat> you're washing your teeth in the morning and you're gargling. That's going to hey, stimulate the vagus nerve. Humming stimulates the vagus nerve um slow breathing cold as well doesn't it cold I, water splashing I love, it on like, the face. yeah i love yes. that sense of cold water on the face or also yeah. in a cold shower when i'm like yes. when you go in and people say oh how can you do it when you wash your hair that is the most amazing feeling on the back of the neck that cold yes. is yes. although you kind of tense up initially going in just that feeling of cold is immediately i find immediately yeah. calming to relax yeah. into it really um, and it, it's it's you know it, it's all it takes is 90 seconds so say, for example, if somebody is stressed out and they're in their workplace and they're feeling the stress, 
just step back, even just if it's for a minute, and take a normal breath in through your nose and have a deliberate and slow and prolonged exhalation. Because by prolonging the length of the exhalation, that information is fed from the body back to the brain and the brain is interpreting that the body is in a safe environment. Mm. Do it for a minute. You know, it's a great little hack. And if you're feeling fatigued or if you want to upregulate, you could do some breath holds because when you take a normal breath in and out through your nose and say, walk around holding your breath, don't do it if you're pregnant. But when you do that, you increase blood flow to the brain. So for example, there's a, a breathing technique that can be used with epilepsy. And a breathing technique to help improve blood flow to the brain would be going for a walk and you're walking a slow walk and you're breathing normally for three paces. And then you're holding your breath for three paces and you're exhaling for three paces and you're holding your breath for three paces. So it's a little bit like box breathing, but you're doing it during physical movement. Um, those, you know, that's why I think the breath, understanding the basis of it, what can you do? You can open up your nose by holding your, by holding your breath. You can open up mm. your airways. You can improve your blood circulation. For people who want to get to sleep quicker at night, like the problem nowadays is that we're overstimulated. We are being fed so much information. And now a lot of the information in our current, like I'm not listening to um, normal TV or radio or nothing. You know, if I have it on, I have it on very briefly because I don't want to be hearing about COVID all the time. Okay. So you can imagine somebody that's in their home and everybody is, is homebound and they have the radio on the background and they're hearing about COVID. I don't know what it's like in the UK, but in Ireland, we have a radio station called RTE1. And if you put that radio station on at six o'clock in the morning, you'd be listening about COVID from six o'clock in the morning till 12 o'clock at night. Mm. How on earth can people have a calm state of mind listening to that negativity all day? You know, so, you know, I think the media really have, they should be answerable here. And social media is also, of course, overstimulation. So there's so much information coming at us. And then we're, we're supposed to be able to switch off to have a good night's sleep. It's not going to happen unless we actively switch off yeah. ourselves. Be and very the news, as you say, so, yeah, the news is so selected for you. I mean, Grant yes. Cardone, I heard him talking on Clubhouse just the other day. He was saying how he had 2,200 people together. None of them wore masks and nobody got COVID. Nobody got symptoms of COVID. Yes. He phoned up every single news network in America and said, I want you to cover this story. And it was turned down by every single one. Yes. And so, yes. you know, we're only yeah. given, it's difficult, isn't it? Because yes, the media are flooding us with it. Before yeah. you go, because I know you're short on time, I have had some questions on sleep, particularly sure, deep sleep. I get lots of people saying to me, why is my deep sleep so low? And obviously we don't know. I mean, or I think when I spoke to Matthew Walker, he was saying that it's about 60% accurate. But let's assume that because we're tracking it against our own metric, we can at mm. least, those readings are useful. Yes. Um, how can we use breathing to enhance deep sleep in particular? Well, there's a few things. Number one is um, your breathing, how you breathe during the day is going to influence how you breathe during sleep. If you're going around with your mouth open during wakefulness, it's going to negatively influence your breathing during sleep. Number two, as a, in addition to sleep hygiene, but I would say that the elephant in the room to have a deep sleep is two things. One is reducing the volume of air that you breathe for 15 minutes before sleep. So say, for example, you're lasting at night, you're watching a little bit of television. Just bear in mind that bear in mind that smart TVs emit blue light, so it might be better off having blue light filter glasses, especially if you if you have insomnia. So you're watching television, 
And for that last 15 minutes, have one hand on your chest, one hand on your, above your navel and gently slow down your breathing. But slow down your breathing so much to the point that you feel air hunger. Now that stimulates the vagus nerve and you will know that you're going into relaxation because you will have increased watery saliva in the mouth. But you'll also feel drowsy. So how do, how do we, we need to be able to switch off physiologically. If we're go, 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 go all day and then we jump into bed, you're not going to go to sleep. You're not going to get that deep sleep. So in terms of 15 minutes of reduced breathing before sleep is very important. How no, do you do that then? What would you be doing? Would you be just slowing? Like, how can someone actually physically yes, do that? What would simple. the breath like look you're like? You're just having, you're focusing on the airflow coming in and out of your nose and you're gently slowing down the speed of the air coming into the nose. And at the top of the breath, you have a really slow and relaxed exhalation. So your breathing is so silent and it's almost that you're breathing that you feel hardly any air coming into your nose. So you have that person, they're focusing on the airflow coming into the nose and they're slowing down their breathing so much, almost that their breath is imperceptible. And then at the top of the breath, they have a really relaxed and a slow and gentle exhalation. So they have a slow, relaxed and gentle exhalation. And then they take in a very soft and gentle breath coming into the nose. And they continue that for about 15, 15 minutes. I'm doing minutes. it while you're saying it and it makes me feel lightheaded. Well, if it's making you feel lightheaded, I'd say it's just initial because normally it, it's, it's quite nice. Unless, <laughs> I thought that was Wim Hof style, get high on your own supply. <laughs> well, to fit my fit would be, it's the opposite in terms of hyperventilation. No, no, I was just, the, you know how he, yeah. he always says, get high on your yeah. own supply. <laughs> but yeah, to do that, you'd want to feel air hunger and you don't want to be feeling stressed. And if 15 minutes is too much, maybe do it for five minutes. So maybe for somebody just to start doing it off for five minutes, the next thing to do is that the mouth should be closed at night. And we've been taping the mouth since 1997, 1998. Now we do have a tape. I don't know if I showed it to you the last time called myo tape. Yeah, did. So because sometimes people are apprehensive about putting tape across their lips. So you could get a tape in a chemist um, called 3M one inch micropore tape. And that will cost you a couple of pounds. Or you can buy it on Amazon and that goes across the lips or you can buy myo tape. And that's $25, which is about 18 pounds for three months supply. Do you have and it there now? Yeah. Yeah, it's worthless. So for people this, that are watching, it's worth them being able to see. Because so it is different. It's a lot more comfortable, isn't it, this, than... Well, I suppose we brought it out for children initially, but also, of course, for adults. So, you know, in terms of we, if children with sleep disorder breathing, we need them breathing through the nose. And we use the myotape as a training tool during the day and then during sleep. The myotape goes like this. It's an elasticated tape, cotton tape, and you stretch it, and you stretch it quite an amount. And it's the elasticity of the tape that's pulling the lips together. So it's ensuring nasal breathing, but it's not covering them out. Mm. Because sometimes people are apprehensive that they can't fall asleep because there's this thing covering. What happens if their nose gets stuffy? Your nose typically won't get stuffy once you continue breathing through it. The one thing about the human nose is the more you use it, the better it works for you. So yeah, it's really, really important. If you have your mouth open during sleep, if you're waking up at a dry mouth in the morning, you're not likely to experience a deep sleep. And it's just unfortunate that the only doctor who has been really singing this and getting shouting it from the rooftops was a medical doctor called Dr. Christian Gimeno. And he coined the phrase obstructive sleep apnea. And he also developed the apnea hypopnea index. So he would be considered 
one of the founding fathers of sleep apnea. So even though sleep apnea has been around a long, long time, it was called the Pickwickian syndrome from, say, for example, Charles Dickens. And in the Pickwick papers, there was a, guy, a boy called Joe, I think, the fat boy. And he was falling asleep all the time. And that's obstructive sleep apnea. So at one point, it was called the Pickwickian syndrome. But it was Dr. Christian Gimler who really brought it to the fore in the 1970s. And the last five years of his life, he spoke about the critical importance of restoring nasal breathing, both during wakefulness and sleep. And I remember him at sleep conferences because I would be talking about the application of breathing exercises. And of course, he is the, the founding father of sleep. And I remember him standing up and talking to the doctors in the room and saying, doctor, we're missing the elephant in the room here is nasal breathing during sleep. And Angela, that is one thing. Why has that not been looked at? So, you know, as I said to you at the very start, I wrote an article that's peer reviewed, um, 10,000 word article, and it's co-authored with two ear, nose and throat doctors, Dr. Carlos O'Connor and Dr. Plaza. And it's looking at the application of breathing re-education for insomnia, for snoring and for obstructive sleep apnea. If you have faster and harder breathing, and if you're breathing through an open mouth, and if you have agitation of the mind, it's not conducive to deep sleep, but nasal breathing and slow breathing and light breathing is very, very important. And, you know, I know I have Matthew's book here as well, Matthew Walker's book, and I'm not sure if you mentioned nasal breathing anywhere in it, <clears throat> but it's very important that that would have been mentioned because that is a key ingredient. You can do all the sleep hygiene in the world. You know, you can... Avoid alcohol, don't be eating late at night, have an airy bedroom, have a cool bedroom, have a dark bedroom, have all that good stuff, all good. Don't have your mouth open. That's the key. Mm. And interesting what you're saying there, actually, is you can practice it during the day to help. Whereas I think yes. people assume they've just got to go straight to taping at night. Actually, they can be doing things during the day because you say yes. the breathing in the day. That's really, yeah. really powerful. Yeah. And also if the nose is stuffy, because 30% of the UK population will have hay fever or they have rhinitis. So they'll typically have a congested or stuffy nose. And it's, it, it is normal that one side of the nose is a little bit more congested than the other. And they normally switch about every 90 minutes or so. The main thing with that is that if you do have a stuffy nose, that you're going to have to open up your nose by holding your breath. Again, and don't will that do... relieve it with hay fever? Because I know, for example, yes, in June, sure. mine gets really Absolutely. bad. Absolutely. Okay. Like we did a pilot study on this in 2013, and it was published in the journal Clinical Ortolaryngology. 26 patients from Limerick Regional Hospital with asthma and chronic rhinosinusitis. And I was the instructor. That's how I know of the, the trial. It was only a pilot study of 26 people. At three-month follow-up, they had 70% less symptoms. So 70% less symptoms, primarily from getting their mouth closed during the day, getting their mouth closed during sleep, but also practicing the breathing exercises. It's not enough just to tape them out if you have poor dysfunctional breathing patterns mm. and for, you know, in terms of the exercise for children, just go to butecoclinic.com, buteco children, or put my name into YouTube. You'll see all of the exercise for children. And then there's some exercise for adults up there as well. You know, so the exercises can be found if you want to downregulate, if you want to upregulate, if you want to decongest your nose, if you want to stop an asthma or a panic attack, all of those exercises they can be found free on our website or up on YouTube. And when you, when you unblock the nose for hay fever, will it stay unblocked for a period of time? No, 
it when you unblock the nose for hay fever, it will only be a temporarily decongestant. But when you practice, the more you practice breathing through your nose, and the more you improve your breathing patterns, the more likely the nose then it doesn't get blocked in the first place. Interesting. So, and it's only been looked at IgE levels, which are a marker of inflammation, have only been studied once when it comes to the buteco method. But the studies show that IgE levels reduced from the application of the buteco method. So people will sometimes say to me, well, what happens? You know, uh, you know I, I won't be able to unblock my nose because I have allergies. But, you know, why not optimize your breathing? And why not optimize and improve the functioning of the autonomic nervous system? Like, why is the immune system reacting so strongly to a harmless substance such as pollen? Mm. And, you know, we don't know because this is, this is so understudied. And that's an issue. But at the same time, we, I've worked directly with about 8,000 people over 20 years. I've seen my books sell tens and tens of thousands of copies. You know, I've got one book that was being put out there in 2005. And I'd say if you went into amazon.co.uk today, and if you put in the best-selling books on asthma, that same book will be still up in the top 10. Yeah. So we've, we've had a large reach out to people and we've had a lot of feedback over the years. So we know that the symptoms, you know, that we can re reproduce the results here. Is it going to work 100% with everybody? Of course, everybody is a little bit different. But I would say that the vast majority of people, if you have a stuffy nose, you can really get help with that by practicing these exercises. Or if you have asthma, or if you have anxiety or sleep disorder breathing, and if you're a little bit scientific, just go into PubMed. And if you put my name into it, you'll see the article. The full article is there. It's free of charge. And you Does that have your it. recent um, peer-reviewed one that you were just yeah, talking about Yeah, that's the one I was well. talking that's about. Yeah, well, I can send amazing. you on the link of it as well. Oh, yeah, please do. And I'll put it in the show notes. Um, yeah. Definitely. Thank you so much, Patrick. And as you Very say, much. you have so much um, content, so much free content for people to go and look at, videos to watch. Um, your tape um, itself is so much better, so much more comfortable than anything I've experienced. Um, thank you so much for coming on today. I know you've got a busy Very day welcome. of podcasts. Thanks I really much. appreciate it. Thanks, Angela. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of High Performance Health. As always, all of the show notes and everything we discussed, including a link to Patrick's book, The Breathing Cure, is over on my website, angelafosterperformance.com forward slash podcast. And as always, you can go and download the transcript there so um, you can find everything that we talked about in detail and go and read it. You can also go and link through to the video of the episode and watch it there as well. As always, I wish you a fantastic week and I will see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening. Remember to review and subscribe. You can grab the show notes, the resources and highlights of everything Angela mentioned over at AngelaFosterPerformance.com. You can also snatch up plenty of other goodies, including the highly helpful Angela Recommends page, which is a list of everything she personally recommends to optimize your mind, body and lifestyle.